Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I was in school and everything I was learning in school, I was just like, eh, wasn't thrilled by, wasn't excited by, but wanted to go in early to the restaurant to sit with the manager and go over wine knowledge. Like I said, I had only started as a busser, but I was like, I want to know more. I want to learn more. You know, teach me. I'll be a server. I want to go in the kitchen. And it just, it really captured me. And I think even at that time, I wasn't quite sure it could be a career. I was just like, I find this fascinating and I want to learn about it. That is the voice of Mary Atea, chef of the Musket Room in New York City. It's uncharted waters, and I think at the end of this month, we're going to know a lot more. And, and, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe things will be sort of like we're ready to go and nobody's going to get sick, and I certainly hope so. And that is legendary restaurateur Drew Naporent. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I am recording this introduction on Thursday, the 27th of May, 2021. It is a beautiful, breezy afternoon here at my home just north of New York City. We are on the verge of the Memorial Day holiday weekend here in the United States. Wherever you are, I hope that you are doing as well as possible in this continuing challenging time. Our feature guest this week is Mary Atea, currently chef of the Musket Room in New York City. And in the lineup, our news and commentary segment, I'm thrilled by this, we have legendary restaurateur Drew Naporent making his first ever visit to Andrew Talks to Chefs. I hope it will not be his last. We had a nice chat. I'll be getting to that in just a few minutes. Before I get into the show, 
I want to share a few dining experiences I recently had. I've been doing this, as many of you know, if you are a regular listener, both to kind of tip you to some places I think are worth going to, knowing about, and also just to share my own dining experiences in hopes that it will encourage those of you out there listening, if you are able to, to get out and support restaurants. I know it's been very frightening uh, to dine out for the last 14 or 15 months. Uh, personally, I was comfortable doing it outside until very recently. Now that I am fully vaccinated, I have been going indoors. I know everybody has their own barometer about all of this, but for what it's worth, I do like sharing my own personal dining experiences. I may or may not have mentioned this last week. To be honest, I can't remember. I probably should have checked before starting the show today, but my friend Robert Simonson, who's a spirits and cocktail writer here in New York, took me to the Long Island Bar last week. That's a, a place I used to love to frequent when I lived in Brooklyn. It's in downtown Brooklyn, and it's a wonderful bar, has a lot of character. They are doing frozen cocktails there. Uh, currently, they have two on offer, a frozen Cosmopolitan and a frozen pina colada. And the frozen pina colada is made with three rums. And I got to tell you, I would go way out of my way to get one of those. Anyway, Robert and I went there about a week ago. And then this past weekend, my wife, Caitlin, and I were knocking around Brooklyn. And I took her there. I went back. I had to have some more of those frozen cocktails. I am not a frozen cocktail snob. I consider the frozen margarita. If you, if you asked me, put a gun to my head and said, what's your favorite cocktail? There are a couple of days of the week I might say frozen margarita. And the way the Long Island Bar does it, they do it in as thoughtful a way as they do all of their cocktails. And those two drinks are just phenomenal. If you are in the Brooklyn area or visiting or if you live in Manhattan and looking for an excuse to come to Brooklyn, Long Island Bar, they're seating indoors. They have abundant outdoor seating. And in addition to those frozen drinks, of course, their regular cocktail program uh, is, of course, very much lauded and respected, and I highly recommend it. Last Sunday, Kate and I visited our friend Billy on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. We took a nice, long, multi-mile walk around Riverside Park, and it ended up spontaneously, no reservation or anything like that, having lunch at Café du Salil on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, I have been trying to be disciplined in a lot of my dining out because I've been doing so much of it and summer is on the way and I want to look okay for summer. Uh, so that was actually a moment of great restraint for me because it is a place that has things like, you know, croque monsieurs and great French fries and of course wine. And I just had some mussels marinara. I gave my fries to Billy. I didn't drink any alcohol. I still had a great time. And I'm very proud of the restraint that I showed there. About two nights ago, I went to Charlie Palmer Steak in New York City. That is in the current home of Ori Ole Restaurant on 42nd Street, West 42nd Street. Harold Moore has for a while now been the corporate executive chef for the company uh, for all of Charlie's restaurants on the East Coast, uh, mostly in New York City. I think there's also one or two in D.C., Harold had invited me in, and I do like to be transparent about this kind of thing, had me into dinner as his guest. He joined me. Uh, I was very pleasantly surprised to find that Charlie, who lives in the Napa Valley, is actually in New York or was in New York the other day. Uh, he joined us for a little while. I had a great chilled seafood platter. I had, because it was a steakhouse, I wanted to you know order some classic steakhouse food, so I had their Caesar salad. I didn't feel like a steak that night. I had something that was beckoning to me from the menu. It was a lobster 
spaghetti, a spicy lobster spaghetti that just hit all my buttons. It was so freaking good. I can't even tell you. Anyway, that was a great meal. I really enjoyed it. And then last night, Wednesday night of this week, uh, Kate and my friend Evan Sung, who I mention all the time, who's a top, top chef and food photographer based here in New York City, but someone who works all over the world. We went to the latest residency up at Stone Barn Center, the chef in residence currently, although he's someone who in the literature they hand out makes a point of saying he doesn't call himself a chef. He just calls himself a cook. But barbecue expert Brian Furman is currently plying his trade at Blue Hill Stone Barns uh, as part of the Stone Barn Center residency program. I think his last night is this Saturday, but man, was the food there exceptional. Just incredible, incredible barbecue. It was also for a place that's known as, you know, a multi-Michelin starred destination restaurant. They kind of let their hair down. The staff was wearing, you know, they were very nice t-shirts, but they were still, you know, branded t-shirts with kind of like a concert tee with the names of all the resident chefs on the back. Um, uh, A lot of us were lucky enough to be able to sit outside. To be totally honest, after this year and a quarter we've all been through as we're on the verge of summer here, it was perfect. It's perfect. I think they're doing just the right thing up there. Food was great. Drinks were great. We had an amazing time. So that's where I ate and drank over the last week. I hope you find that at least somewhat informative. And maybe it'll encourage you to get out however you're comfortable doing it and dine out and support restaurants and show yourself a good time. And if you're not comfortable doing it yet, as a friend of mine who I wrote to the other day about dinner, he's not ready to do it yet. That's cool too. Everyone's on their own. Everyone's on their own timeline with this thing. Uh, But when you are comfortable, I hope you will get back out there and start enjoying restaurants again. I do want to mention that also in addition to our guest this week, we will be joined, and this is going to be a regular thing now, in the mid-show by Brad Metzger. Brad is the founder of our relatively new sponsor, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS. He will be joining us, as he will be every week, to highlight some current jobs his firm is seeking great candidates for. Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions has been a leading hospitality recruitment and placement firm for more than 17 years. Founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago and based in Southern California, BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top-level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career, from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef, to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager, to outside-the-box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There is never a cost to you, the candidate. And I want to stress this, BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality, even if you have reached out to them, even if you're in their candidate tracking program, which we're going to talk about in the middle of the show, they won't even mention you to a possible employer without checking with you first. It's a vault. All right. So reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. 
BMRS has created a special email for our listeners. You can send a resume to ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or you can call 310-245-5108. However you reach out to them and whomever you speak to, whether it's Brad himself or one of his many associates there, be sure to tell them Andrew suggested you get in touch. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com and keep an eye out for marquee listings on BMRS's Instagram feed at BMRS Food Jobs. So in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment today, we have a legend, legendary restaurateur, Drew Naporent. I'm sure most people listening to this show know that name. Drew, first made his mark back in 1985 when he opened Montrachet Restaurant in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York City. At the time, that was a barely colonized restaurant. It was kind of a a wasteland, both residentially and commercially. Drew was one of the people who really pioneered it as a restaurateur. Montrachet was a landmark restaurant. And since then, of course, he's been involved with a couple of dozen restaurants over the years. Uh, The ones you probably know are Tribeca Grill, which he continues to own and operate obviously in Tribeca, the Nobu restaurants, and Batard, also in Tribeca. That is in what used to be the home of Montrachet. And in between being Montrachet and Batard, it was, of course, the restaurant Cortone. Drew and I had lunch spontaneously about a week and a half ago at a restaurant we both love called O Mandarin. It's a Chinese restaurant in Westchester County. It's For Westchester, it's a miraculously great restaurant. And we were catching up there. And as we were talking, Drew, he was just just randomly dropping these really intelligent observations about where the industry was as we're, you know, still struggling with this COVID crisis, where it's headed, what's going to make the difference. He's someone I've always thought was kind of brilliant at taking a kind of the 30,000 foot view of things, putting things in historical and sociological context. So after the lunch, I shot him a text and I said, hey, would you mind, you know, coming on the show? I just really want to just extemporaneously pick your brain. He said, yes, we met uh, two days ago outside Batard shortly before dinner service. You're going to hear background noise of the street, of tables being set up. Uh, We talk about this in the interview. This couple showed up before the restaurant was technically open and Drew kind of showed his old school hospitality chops by getting them seated getting them drinks, even though the restaurant was technically closed. Uh, We talk about the meaning of that seemingly small gesture in our conversation. Before I share the conversation, let me please remind you the lineup is sponsored by Mies. And this is where I usually read a, you know, a short scripted spiel about Mies. I want to take just an extra couple of seconds this week. For those of you who weren't listening a few weeks ago when we started that relationship, when we had the founder of Mies, Josh Sharkey, who is a professional chef himself, and he is the person who developed Mies to fill a void that he perceived in the industry. This is what Mies is, and I just want to make sure listeners are getting this because everyone who gets a demo of the program or who tries it via the free trial that's constantly on offer and is available right now just falls in love with this thing, signs up right away. Mies is a place where you can house all of your recipes but it's much more than just a website. It is interactive. So here's what I mean by that. You can house all of your recipes there. 
You assign each one to its own file, essentially, and you can do all kinds of things to manipulate the recipes once they are in the system. So for example, if you change the quantity of one ingredient in a recipe, the software uh, is programmed in such a way that it will adjust all the other ingredients to catch up to that one change, right? So it'll automatically scale the recipe based on that one change. It does costing. Uh, you can change the unit of measurements that ingredients are expressed in. It's really a powerful tool. And again, it's the first thing of its kind. And it was specifically designed to work with recipes and designed with professional chefs and cooks and other people who work with recipes in mind. That's what makes it unique. Uh, you know, Usually people have had to adapt existing software that wasn't meant for recipes. This was expressly designed for recipe management. It also enables you within the file for each recipe to include photographs of individual steps or of the plate up of a dish. And you can also include videos, whether of an entire demo of, of a dish or a technique or of individual portions of a dish or technique so that people who are gonna be charged with making it in your restaurant or restaurants don't have to scroll through, say, a seven, eight minute video to find one piece of instruction. You can break all the individual steps up into their own photographs or videos. So in addition to housing your recipes, it is an incredible tool and time-saving device for teaching recipes to new staff members or as a refresher, even for people who've been around for a long time and maybe you know, aren't following things to the letter anymore. I really believe that if you try it, and again, there is a free trial constantly on offer at the website, you will thank us and you will make Mies a part of your professional life. The place to go to check it out is getmees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com slash Andrew. And with that, here's my conversation with the great Drew Naporent recorded outside Batard Restaurant just a couple of days ago. First of all, can I just get a sound check? This is testing one, two, three. <laughs> testing one, two, three. Dream. Your sa- your sound is a dream. Living on a dream. Drew. Yes. Thank you for sitting down with me. Thanks, You Andrew. just endured an hour with me at lunch last week, so right. I appreciate you doing it again. Very good soup dumplings. Um, so listen, this is the entire premise of this conversation. We We had lunch last week, and you made just a couple of passing comments that, you know, it just reminded me... There's very few people I know who are able to take sort of the 30,000-foot view mm-hmm. of a time, a moment, the way you do. And obviously, you've been involved with so many restaurants over the years and currently are involved in restaurants that are in the process of surviving, reopening, et cetera, et cetera. I really just wanted to sit with you and talk for a few minutes about, as the pandemic starts to be more managed as business and uh, starts to come back up, as restrictions start to go down, just kind of where this industry is right now as you see it. Now, that's a very broad subject. Sure. But if I put it out there that broadly, what's the first thing that comes to mind for you well, at this moment in time? The first thing that comes to mind, quite frankly, Andrew, is that people are most of the time getting the wrong advice. Whether it's about you our, mean you mean just people in general people are, in the industry well the people you know like you're gonna you're taking the time to talk to me believe it or not I've been doing this for you know as an owner anyway I've been doing it for many many years but as an owner for about forty plus years and 
I, I do it really well. And if you look at the track record, you know, Nobu is 27 years now and Tribeca Grill's 31 years. And this is our first restaurant, Montrachet, which morphed into Corton, which is now Batard. It's 36 years. So just the fact that you're smart enough to ask my advice, whether I give good advice or good make good predictions, this is what I'm going to say. Okay. I'm still good at what I do. Okay. But I, I, I don't go out of my way to, you know, Offer my judgments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. This was this conversation was completely right, we instigated. Friends. No, no, no. But yeah. this, I came to you. You didn't right. say I want to come on and straighten everybody no, out. No, no, I wanted to. I just literally wanted to pick your brain. I just think that I'll give you the best example. When this thing hit, you had to sort of look out and figure out the timing of everything. And I said, the second there's a vaccine, which should be around March. Things will start to get better. They've already convinced people not to dine indoors, but they've basically made the rules such that you can dine outdoors. In New York, they used to charge the crap out of you to put one table. I remember I put a table in front of this restaurant and got fined. Now you have all these huts. The outdoor dining is working. But I had made the prediction that once they allowed us a little bit to go back indoors and, you know, things would get back to normal. And... All the while, I'm the most cautious person. How do you I, mean that? Well, cautious? How you mean you're conservative I, in your decision well, making? Well, first of all, I got COVID right away in March of 2020. Uh, you know, I, I had been on a trip to Wyoming. I do an event in Wyoming. I came down with a mild case of something, and my wife immediately was like, "You're you're going in the basement. You you can't be near me." And then you know, I tested and I I, I had the antibodies, but you couldn't even get a test back then. Mm-hmm. So this thing has evolved to a, a, a great degree. The, the, the reality is, now that we're back, it's totally uncharted waters. Like, I really don't know what's going to happen. Because, for instance, Nobu was even doing tremendous business when we were at 25% or 50%. We were full to capacity. So there's a certain segment of the populace that is not really scared of the COVID. Now, you heard that in Jersey... He's going to do away with the six-foot foot rule, which means, you know, most restaurants... He, you mean the governor? The governor. On Friday, they, it's not going to be the social distancing. So all this stuff is happening slowly but surely. So, and, and then I'm going to say something outrageous. The government has been fantastic. Nobody, State, local, federal, which uh, one? Well, the feds with the PPP. There was a seminar today. They gave all of us several dollars to prop us up. Without that, we could not have done this. I'm very optimistic, but I'm 65. I opened this restaurant when I was 29. This time around, this was like opening a brand new restaurant. I, only one employee came back, my dishwasher. And your pastry chef. Oh, my pastry chef. She's terrific. Julie Elkin. But the point I'm trying to make to you is, you know, you do this, you interview chefs all the time, and it's a nomadic business. But this is the... This is going to be uncharted waters for a little bit. For well, a first of bit. all, in the short, you just referred to things happening slowly but surely. Right. I feel like that was the case. I feel like for the last month, it's like somebody like just threw the throttle into high gear. I feel like the changes now toward renormalizing right. have come fast. Like you mentioned that six foot thing in New Jersey, that doesn't actually really surprise me. You know, New York, we just the 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 the, the capacity restrictions. The is, were, there were so many mixed messages here, Andrew. To wear a mask, 
not wear a mask. Mm-hmm. I err on the side of abundance of caution. Abundance of caution. And we, we're still wearing masks here because we don't know who's walking into our premise if they're vaccinated or not. Now, as, I, as a restaurateur, I can make a decision. I'm only going to take vaccinated people, but I haven't made that decision. So anyway, it's uncharted waters until, and I think at the end of this month, we're going to know a lot more. And, and, you know, maybe you're right. Maybe things will be sort of like we're ready to go and nobody's going to get sick. And I certainly hope so. Because, I, you know, I know some people who died during this time. Yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. So what do you think is going to be... Look, this is an industry where at any given time, there's a certain number of businesses that are right on the brink, right? Or every month making a decision, do they go on, right? That's a fact of life in this industry. You know, restaurants that are still here have been beaten up for... 14 months now it's been unbelievable the the you know the the pandemic itself and then the constantly shifting uh direction from the government um you just referred to some of this i mean it's not just when there's been a lack of clarity it's been like it's been like whiplash right Right. i mean there was that whole thing in new york anyway in the fall where places were allowed to reopen and then shut down again i mean it was brutal what are some of the determining factors moving forward that you think are going to determine broadly speaking how the restaurant rebounds like would you think it's strictly a matter of covid numbers staying tamped down my um, biggest worry quite frankly is, is is that something happens where it's like india where you know they they lock down and then they they surge terribly so people have to get vaccinated it's in india they obviously they didn't have the vaccine and if they got the vaccine it was obviously too late as well look the vaccine seems to be the, the, the be-all and end-all of us getting back to normal. And if that's the case, because I see it in the posture of our mayor and our governor, you know, obviously right now I'm only fixated on New York. I'm optimistic. I, I mean, I have no reason to be, to not be optimistic. I just think um, the challenge is we're, we're supported by the government. If we got the PPP money the, till, um, I think it's the end of September. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see if the strong survive. I mean, I'm here 36 years. My rent is 12000 a month. The guy right next door to me is paying thirty-four. Maybe he got a, an abatement. Who knows? It's going to be different strokes for different folks. Andrew, some people did fun. They did great during the pandemic. You, these outdoor structures. I mean, you know, at the beginning, the governor was like, and he was putting fines out. And then he had his own little bit of problems. And I, I've noticed it's like, I don't know if it's cause and effect, but there's no teeth in anything anymore. You mean in terms in Well, the in, government actually... they're letting things slide? I don't see, think they're letting things slide. I mean, I've had three visits from different agencies at Tribeca Grill, but that's the American dream being shot down, quite frankly. You what know, kind they, of visits? What do you mean? Uh, the Inspectors? Department, the fire department, the building department, the, you know, every department. You know. Has that all been continuing unabated yeah, during this yeah, whole time? Yeah, yeah. I'll give you an example. You see the, see the, 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 the planters, right? You're you're, so, you're pointing to the out the outdoor, new and improved outdoor right. seating so, area. So, so there has to be sand inside. So if a guy comes, the Department of Transit, let's just say, and he does, and then he, oh, you don't have enough sand in there. What, what are you talking about? That's what. So it doesn't blow away or something? No, 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 no. Well, you know, if a car hits it, or you know, there there are certain dimensions it has to be. For instance, it has to be 18 inches and. Mm-hmm. But the guy's hitting the wood, 
and saying it's hollow. There's not enough sand in there. That's busting your, you know what? Mm-hmm. We don't need that right now. Mm-hmm. Open table. I've been open three weeks. Somebody said they were here for four hours. That's just not true. We forgot a middle course. You mean you they know. were saying their their meal uh, took four dragged hours. on? It took four hours. You know that's interminable. Yeah, that is interminable if it happened, but it's not what happened. So tweet, you know, Twitter sphere, <laughs> they they banned Donald Trump. Good thing, but you know, the open table wants to keep the review. And I said, do you know I've been a customer for so many years? Yeah. And I've never complained about a review. I'm I'm not impervious to you putting reviews up, but they have to be truthful. So anyway, the point is very simple professional knowledge I've been around the block a few times I know what I'm talking about and then you have to have the confidence because you have a staff they want to make money and you have to look at them in the eye and you have to say you know what this is the way I think it's going to go you know I came here to meet you we we went inside briefly first of all I have to say you guys you, it looks like you got a full staff in there they said nobody can find any help trust me and I'm working with these people and all I care about is making them better. So we come through the kitchen. You, uh, and I should say, everybody was masked. Right. I have to say, right. even in the pre-service, there's no, no, no one knew I was about to walk in. Right. You uh, took a call from someone who needed to make a reservation change. You right. dealt with that. Coming tonight. Um, but here's my question, though. You, yeah. as a, you're, you're here, you're hands-on. Are you detecting a change a palpable change in your, the the customer base. Are you detecting no. more of an well? I mean, in a pot, like a, an more of an enthusiasm than a couple of weeks ago to be just. Are, are you detecting more of a normalcy on the part of your diners in terms of this is not extraordinary now to be out to dinner again? Are you I, 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 detecting I, I, anything like that? I, I, the one thing I haven't done is, is try to predict who's going to walk in the door. But uh, Batard has always had terrific customers, and that's the case now. But they're all local, like these people, very local. Um, we're not getting the tourists. We're not getting the, you know, the people read a guidebook or something. It seems to me, and when I say local, it doesn't have to be Tribeca. They can come from uptown because I've spoken to a lot of people. They say, oh, no, we love this restaurant. We came all the way from Midtown. or, But it's all like Bittard. I mean, we've laid a lot of brick with Bittard because it was the best new restaurant in America in 2015. Got three stars, still has three stars. Um, and we've always been pretty consistent. So I think the customer is, is what we've always had, which is they know what they're getting, you know, high-quality wine, high-quality food, and at the right price. Very simple formula. I mean, I think it's a value. That's uh, We always put this restaurant on the map to be the top food and wine at a reduced price. Mm-hmm. That's the formula. I take that point, but are there? Have, what are you making? Have you have you made any other changes in in the last several weeks? I mean, you you have a new chef here. As you're anticipating things revving back up, I mean, you have like the new outdoor thing here and whatnot. But have have you made any other changes looking forward to the summer uh, in the menu in this in this experience here? Anything that would be discernibly different from pre-pandemic? Well, I, I, I cannot stress to you enough. I've had these restaurants for years. Outdoor dining was never an option. It was too expensive to put a table outside. I mean, literally, they. first of all, I, at Tribeca Grill, I have a loading dock. Yes. Which is part of the demise premises. They tried to find me for that because it's outdoors, but it's part of... So, I mean, 
the idea of having outdoor dining. So this is the first time we've had outdoor dining. Look at this. I have like 10 tables outside. Yeah. And people, look, they, 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 they want to sit outside. Now, me, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'll lower the price outside. It's not the same experience as inside. Blah, 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 blah. But, you know, bottom line, you learn from your customers. You, that, that's what's been happening. And as long as, you know. Is there more demand for outside tables? Now? I mean, like I now, as we sit here at the end of May. I'm very surprised. Everyone, people are not afraid to go inside. Yeah. And that, that surprises me. But that's new, right? Well, it's new because people have been vaccinated. That's what I'm saying. That's yeah, like absolutely. the last. That's like the last few months. My wife won't go inside. Still. I mean, if she went to, you know, we we had David Kinch, you know, intersect. Uh, that's the only time in a year and a half. Interesting. But, you know, she won't come here. She won't go to Tribeca Grill. Won't right. go to Nobu. But you're comfortable now that you're vaccinated. I wouldn't use the word comfortable. I mean, I'm like I should be comfortable. But I'm, I still, you know, I have the. Masks. You think in, intellectually, you think you should be comfortable. Emotionally, it's you got a little ground I, to I, I cover. I've been on the block enough times to understand something is about to happen. Even Dr. Fauci said we might need a booster yeah. in September. Why did he say that? If the thing is only efficacious for six months and people start getting sick, sick in September, that's not good. The reason I'm optimistic, my daughter was supposed to get married in October of 2020. She moved the wedding to 20. 21 September and it looks like you know there can be dancing and no masks and all these things are going to happen in September God willing and I'm not a religious person right <laughs> the one thing I'll point out to you Andrew is this most people stayed within their ballywick in other words you know when you couldn't serve indoors this is the great thing about the restaurant business. They thought on their feet. They innovated. They did takeout and and, the, and delivery. And in, a, in many cases, it was mediocre. But in some cases, it was brilliant. I mean, I never ate so much pizza. And I checked out things. And, you know, Instagram is a great source of looking at beautiful food and, and, and exploring. So I love that. The, the, the one thing I will tell you as a seasoned professional is... We're done with the phase of fine dining, but we've been done for a while. There'll be a handful of restaurants that can survive fine dining because some people like that ritual. I mean, it's just the mode is the mode is now. Um, give me what I want, not not give me what you want. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, it's it's like you would think a lot of chefs would be on the street because maybe you know restaurants are closing and all that kind of thing. And you know, I can point to some very prominent people either left their job or lost their job. Yeah. But there's not a lot of people like that. You were just alluding to, like, you know, all the pivoting, right, of the pandemic. You know, you were talking about the tenaciousness of the industry. When you look back on the last 14, 15 months, listen, I have as much respect and affection for people who do what you do as anybody. I have to say, I was surprised at how well so a lot of businesses came through it. You're, you're perceiving that they're coming through it. They might not be able to come through, even though they reopen and they're busy. You think we, they're on, like a year running on fumes? It, 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 what I've noticed is each case is different. Like I've had a landlord who I told, if I'm not open and I'm not making any money, I can't pay you. And he agreed. Well, I don't know about the other people. You know, Balthazar, I mean, God bless him. I don't want to do 400 covers a night and with the added outdoor seating. I couldn't even do that to my cooks. I don't even know how that's happening. So what are you saying? You think there may be like a, a delayed wave of closings we're going to see? Like people uh, yeah, who have made it this far but are actually not thriving? Without, without question. 
without question. Because the landlords are not smart enough to lower, you know, the, the lower the rent. That's, but what's that about? Because they're greedy. That's I mean, all. But, but what? I've been saying this for years. But is there something I don't see as a civilian, Drew? It makes yes. no sense to me yes. that a landlord would not want a successful restaurant to stay in place. 23 years, Manobu was on the corner of Franklin and Hudson. We vacated about four years ago. The space is still empty. Right. We were paying close to a million dollars. But this is what I don't understand. What, what did they think was going to happen when a restaurant like that leaves? They thought they were going to get a tenant. Here, I, I mean, thank God, I have a great dialogue. We had a meeting and... It wasn't even any question. Tribeca Grill, I own the space. So all those common charges, I mean, I, I own the space. I owe them that money. And by the way, with the PPP, the PPP doesn't cover if you're an owner. If you own a space, they don't want to cover it. So, I mean, the PPP is great, though, because the employees get paid 60% of all the PPP money. It just goes right to them. Yeah. And on the second round, they're covering some expenses like our food some of our food costs right, and right. things like that. Right. Look, look, I'm at the end of my career, and I recognize I'm at the end of my career, but I, I still have a lot of knowledge to give. The funny thing is, is nobody's asking. You and I, we can have a wonderful conversation, you know, but everyone, you know, it's, it's, it's like, if I had to make a prediction, it's going to be a whole new era of restaurants. I'm In not, what way? How, what do you mean? I, I, I know Danny Meyer espouses hospitality. And he's right because at the end of the day, hospitality is um, a lot of the reason that people, you know, have gone out. When I was a young person working for other people, the hospitality was missing, especially in the high, uh, expensive, high priced restaurants, the French restaurants I worked at. I don't know. I don't know too many guys like me, Danny Meyer, who, you know, can look at their staff and somehow impart in the staff that sense of hospitality. It just happened here a moment ago with you here. These two people mm -hmm. had a five thirty. They wanted to sit down at five. I said yes. I sat them down. I got them drinks. Blah blah blah. And I went inside and I told my staff, I said, you have to understand, if I had customers at 5 o'clock, I'd open the doors at 5 o'clock. It's little things. It's like stupid little things. But there's a, a million, or I, as I say, a myriad of elements that add up to the experience. I know you guys are getting ready to open. Um, thanks for taking a, a few minutes. Day. Andrew, keep talking to the chefs. Maybe out of all of this, this is what I always say. You listen all day long, and then there's a little nugget somewhere in there. But when it's when you hear it, you're like, what did they just say? And that sort of sticks with you. And everybody you interview, they're giving you a little bit of sechel. They're giving you a little bit of their What's knowledge. that mean? Uh, you know, the, the Yiddish word for knowledge. Okay. They're giving you a little bit. So make sure you hear the sechel, you know, then you can recognize. In my case, when I was at Cornell years ago, we should, when you say Cornell, you're talking about the School of Hotel and... School of Hotel Administration. Yeah. We had this great professor, and he goes, professional knowledge and confidence. It's elemental, but it sums up everything, and that's the way, that's been the underpinnings of everything I've done, which is learn your craft, learn it well, don't BS yourself, don't lie to people, and then when you look somebody and you say... Pick up that napkin, 
get, get a drink to table 12, whatever it is, they see that you know what the hell you're talking about because you have the confidence to give that direction. That's the bottom line. That's my little sechel moment. I appreciate it, Drew. Thanks for making time for me. I know it's a busy one. You got it, Andrew. We'll do it again. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. (laughs) It's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite (laughs) ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Yeah, that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so. And welcome back to the show. My thanks again to Drew Naporent. Drew, I'm so glad at the end of that conversation you said we'll do it again. Yeah, we should do it again. We should also get you on for one of our rare non-chef interviews and get your whole story on the show sometime. I I was lucky enough to interview you for my last book at length, and your stories are almost without peer, and uh, that would be an incredibly epic interview to do. I hope we'll do that sometime. So I'm going to get you to our feature interview with Mary Atea in just a moment, but first, as we will be doing in this space each week, we are going to be featuring some of the newest and most appealing job listings from our sponsor, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, also known as BMRS. Once again this week, we are joined by the founder of the firm, Brad Metzger himself. But I do want to stress that BMRS is a seven-person firm with specialists working full-time to match the best candidates with the best jobs. I strongly suggest you bookmark their website, restaurantsolutions.com, where most of their current job opportunities are listed and frequently updated And you should also follow their Instagram feed where they often highlight some key listings. The handle there is at BMRS Food Jobs. And that again is on Instagram. I do want to stress, as I did at the top of the show, BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality policies. They will not mention your name or the fact that you have been in touch with them, even to the best prospective employers, without clearing it with you first in each case. I also want to say, as I do at the end of this interview, that if you hear any jobs that Brad mentions, even if you yourself aren't looking, if you have a friend who you think might be drawn to a particular job or a particular location, particular opportunity, please point them to the show and they can check it out. And with that, here is our sponsor from BMRS, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, Brad Metzger himself. Wait, wait, do one of these. Do a, here we go. I usually save that for the feature. Give me one of those. Come on. Here we go. Here we go. With Brad Metzger. Oh, thank you. Brad, welcome back to the show for your second week here as a sponsor of Andrew Talks to Chefs. You're going to do your listing of some of the marquee positions you're looking to fill this week. But before you do that, I want to talk about something that you told me about when we were, if I can sound corporate for a second, when we were onboarding you as a sponsor and you were telling me, things about your company I may not have known. BMRS has an applicant tracking system. Is that the right term? Yeah. Can you just quickly tell people what that is? Because even for people who maybe aren't looking right now or for people who just want to have someone out there keeping an eye out for their absolute dream situation, what is the applicant tracking system? Well, I need to give props to my director of operations, Jackie Lianza, who customized this amazing system for us so that 
when we are talking to a candidate, a chef, a pastry chef, a general manager, a director of ops, or whoever, and maybe they're fine in their job, they're okay, they're you know, but they share with us their ideal scenario in terms of that next step in their career. It might have to do with a special location. Maybe they're in New York and they want to move to Arkansas. Maybe they want to move to Hawaii. Maybe they really want to move to Turks and Caicos. These are all places that we've had recent positions. So we can put in our system the type of position they are looking for, the location, the salary range they are seeking, and if and when those positions pop up, we enter them into our applicant system and the people who have expressed that they're looking for positions like that, they pop up within seconds so that we're able to reach out to people that have given us their top requirements for their next role. So we're able to just literally reach out to them when those opportunities pop up with us. I mean, it's not that different. Anyone who's looked for a home, right? Whether it's a rental or a place to own, it's not that different from Letting a broker know, like in New York terms, I'm looking for a two-bedroom in Chelsea, pets allowed, la, la, la. When those parameters come up as a match, you get a phone call. I mean, it's the same idea. There you go. I wouldn't know because, you know, I've been married for many, many years, but I would imagine that's how some of the dating apps work too. But again, I wouldn't know. Yeah, I wouldn't either. I missed that entire phenomenon. Me too. Not unhappily. I don't know that I'm sorry I missed it. <laughs> <laughs> from the stories I've heard. So Brad, as always, we're going to do this every week. Tell us about a couple of the marquee or key jobs that you want to put out there into the into the eardrums of our audience this week. As you know, we work front and back of the house management roles. So it's everything from chefs to GMs, director of ops, but a few of the really amazing ones that have come up over the last week. We have an executive chef position in San Diego. And the plan is for this position to trans transfer into a culinary director position. Modern American restaurant, super high volume, seven, eight million a year. So salary is up to 145K a year on this position. Multiple private chef positions all over the country. These are anywhere from 90 to 140,000 a year. Are the private chef positions both live in and day to day? These happen to all be live out. Live out, meaning you do not live with the family. Correct. Most of them these days are like that. You know, it's pretty rare that, that you get a live-in situation. We have a bu bunch of exciting hotel positions, exec sue at a boutique hotel in Santa Monica, head baker, pastry chef positions, multiple of those from 70 to 110,000 a year. We still have our position we're working on at Yale University. It's an exec chef for one of the halls there. Really awesome position, incredible benefits, full relocation to Yale University. Brand new exec chef with vesting equity opportunity in Monterey. Wow. This is one of my favorites. It's a relaunch of, an, of a very successful restaurant. In new design from top to bottom. It's gorgeous. They're going to be reopening in two to three months right in Monterey. Salaries upwards around 120, 130 plus vesting equity. That's pretty rare. Very cool. Very rare. And I'll just highlight one other unusual one in Las Vegas. It's an executive corporate dining chef cooking for executives, daytime only, Monday through Friday. And this goes from 90 to 120 a year. Totally unique for our business where a chef can work Monday through Friday, morning till afternoon, have nights and weekends free. So those are some of them right now. Great. So as always, uh, audience, the links for where you can go to the BMRS website will be on the episode description for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com and also on our Apple podcast listing. And stay tuned 
after this interview, and I'll reiterate the phone number and all that information for BMRS. And again, Brad, as always, we should say this is from about uh, roughly 80 jobs you guys are looking to fill at any given time. Yeah, it's probably gone up to about 100 over the last week and a half. Sign of the times. Oh, yeah. And I did not say this last week, but I should have. You know, any listeners out there who hear about these jobs, if they're not for you or if the applicant tracking system isn't something you want to do, keep all this in mind for friends of yours who may be in the business. You know, if you one of those jobs sounds like something a friend of yours might want to check out, please put them onto the show and onto the link so they can reach out that way. Brad, as always, thank you very much for supporting the show and for coming on. All right, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for joining us again, Brad, and our thanks to BMRS for sponsoring and supporting Andrew Talks to Chefs. Again, we do recommend that you bookmark and keep an eye on the BMRS website, restaurant-solutions.com, to stay abreast of up-to-the-minute job listings and whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk, Brad and the BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you're looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email address, atc at restaurantsolutions.com or call 310-245-5108. And whomever you speak to or reach out to there, please be sure to tell them that you heard about them on Andrew Talks to Chefs. So our feature guest this week is Mary Atea. Mary is currently the chef of the Musket Room, which just recently maintained its Michelin star. I was very happy to hear that. I also had a wonderful meal there just a few weeks ago. I had a tasting menu there that was just spectacular, although they do also offer a la carte dining. I was just, you know, hadn't had Mary's food since she left Anissa restaurant where she used to be the chef de cuisine, and I wanted to, you know, get as full a taste of what she was up to as I could. So I did the tasting menu. I'm glad that I did. Mary is someone I've, I've, you know, come into contact with over the years. It's always been in a group setting. I talk about this at the top of the interview. We've just never had a chance to have a heart to heart. This was our first one. It's a little unusual that we're having it, you know, in public view or within public earshot. Uh, But I hope for all of you, that's a good thing. Uh, As I said, Mary used to be the chef de cuisine at Anissa where she had been since she was an extern from the Institute of Culinary Education. Uh, that's not the most normal path to stay at one restaurant for quite so long, although it does happen. We talk about all of that in the interview. And she has a very unique path to the professional kitchen. I don't even want to spoil it, but let me just say that she was headed for a career that in, gosh, maybe 300 interviews on this show, I don't think we've ever had a guest who had been on this path before they turned to the professional kitchen. And I'll let you listen and figure that out when you get to it. One footnote to this interview, we do mention that Suzanne Cups used to be at Anissa Restaurant. And I then jump in as Mary and I are talking and say that she is currently the chef at 232 Bleecker. I just saw on Instagram maybe a day ago that Suzanne is pushing off. So first of all, Suzanne, if you do listen to the show these days, I wanna wish you all the best. Uh, I wanted to make that correction to what I said in the interview. Obviously, things move fast in this industry. Uh, Suzanne said on Instagram that she's stepping away from restaurants, but only for a little while. Selfishly, as a diner, I do hope you will be back in restaurants eventually. Suzanne, I do love your food. 
Our feature interview, as always, is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, here is my conversation with Mary Atea. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great to have you. I told you in my research, I realized this is like your first long-form biographical solo interview, so I'm I'm honored to have that. I'm I'm glad it's you conducting it. Oh, thank you. Um, This is also one of my favorite kind of interviews because you and I have known each other a Mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. We've never. It's always been group situations. Like I, we've never had a one-on-one heart. I don't know. I haven't gotten your story. You know, I, I went and researched before we sat down today, but mm-hmm. I've never gotten it from, you know, we've never mm-hmm. had that kind of talk. So right. it's a little weird it's on mic, but <laughs> you know, better than nothing. Exactly. Before we get into all of that, we were just chatting for a minute. Can you, I've just been trying to ask people, because of this time we've all been living through, although it's, it, it is getting obviously substantially better, mm-hmm. um, but how, just as we sit here today on May 19, 2021, you, the restaurant, how, How's life for you at Musket Room right now as we're at this moment in the (laughs) saga that we've all been living through? Yeah, things are great. I mean, I would say over the last month, they've definitely picked up to back back to somewhat normal levels. Obviously, nothing is completely normal, but each week has been getting exponentially more busy um, as restrictions start to get lifted. So yeah, we're just uh, kind of feel like we're playing catch up, but after a year of sort of doing really minimal covers and a hard winter where, you know, it was just really hard to keep morale up because we just felt like, what is this all for? Feels really good. I think everyone feels really good to kind of be back to this, this sort of normal levels of, of regular restaurant craziness and, you know, busyness. That's great to hear. I mean, I will say I, I I walked down here from the thing at Grand, I walked down from Grand Central Station today Mm -hmm. and the city is palpably energized and and more so like downtown I think in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. than say Midtown so I'm glad that that's registering on your guys side of the you know of the divide (laughs) because it definitely feels like there's a lot of energy in the air Mm -hmm. all this stuff people talked about right this pent up need to socialize and you're feeling that yeah definitely definitely um people coming in and walk-ins you know like I said we'll have a certain amount of covers and then just double them on a Tuesday because there's just no knowing anymore. So many people are out, and I think um, with the weather being as gorgeous as it is this week, you know, it's it's just sort of all compounding and, mm-hmm. and coming together, and it's it's good to feel busy and and, Great. and that energy of the choreography in the kitchen being back to somewhat normal. I mean, we're all a little rusty. We're 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 still getting there, but um, you mean in terms of doing vo- like a yeah, doing volume yeah. again? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it's like going back to the gym. Exactly. After you know, there is there's a practice and a um a training to it all and when for a whole winter we were kind of just bare bones and doing really minimal uh stuff um to get back into sort of these full force menus and staffing and just watch the dance every night is is really fun and uh hopefully we nail it more often you know obviously there's still hiccups but we're we're figuring it out and it's great let's get right to your story as i understand it you were from buffalo new york i am tell me what you're just whatever first comes to mind if i just very broadly say tell me about your childhood your family life what your folks did like what comes to mind for you i would say i grew up in a great family really tight-knit and close um my mom was a teacher 
um, at the high school I ended up going to. My dad was a mailman, so yeah, nice, nice little family life, three siblings. You know, we loved to eat, I would say. There was nothing none of us ever tried or wouldn't eat. Um, my mom was always making home-cooked meals. My dad, is, who's of Lebanese descent, he's not from there. His parents were. Um, we'd eat a lot of Lebanese food kind of before it was ever even on trend or, you know, mm-hmm. those those items. Um, like what kind of stuff? What were like house, I mean, we just like, like kind of grew up, like always just had like hummus in the fridge with pita bread and, you know, baba ganoush and grape leaves. And, you know, now all of those are just so commonplace and you can kind of, you can almost pick them up at your bodega or deli. Yeah. Um, but I just remember at the time I would bring hummus and pita to you know, school for lunch and people would be like, what is that? You know, it just wasn't was your, exotic. yeah, it wasn't yeah. your, uh, you yeah. know, white bread and peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Um, not to say I didn't have those, but, um, yeah, it was definitely, we were, we were sort of a food centered family, always loving to eat and get around the table. And where did you fit into the peck, the not pecking order, but the chronology <laughs> kind of, yeah. of siblings? Uh, I'm if the that's baby. not the same thing. Oh, you were yeah, the baby. I'm the baby. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I wouldn't have guessed that knowing you. Really? Okay. Yeah, I would have yeah. guessed older sister. Oh, yeah. The, that's the youngest, interesting. The favorite, if you will. <laughs> so did you, people? They looked out for you. That kind mm-hmm. of that kind of dynamic. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know, as kids, we would argue or fight as we would, but also they would always have my back no uh-huh. matter what. And, um, you know, to this day, we all look out for each other. And what kind of kid were you? Like introvert, extrovert, athlete, um, uh, artistic? Like what kind of things did you do? I was definitely shy. I was a shy kid. I didn't, you know, I got along with the people that were my friends and stuff, but I was never, you know, I didn't, I was always wary of talking to new people or, you know, when you're parents would take you somewhere and introduce you to all these people. I just that wanted was like to. Torture. Yeah. I, You'd I didn't, like hide behind yeah, the legs kind yeah, of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think I remember leaving like my mom trying to drop me off at pre-K and I would just be bawling and holding on to her. So I, I was definitely kind of a shy kid, but when I was in my groups, I would, would open up a lot. I was an athlete, played a lot of sports growing up, soccer primarily. Were the other ones, was it all team stuff or did you also do individual? This is something I'm always yeah. interested to know if it was all it was team all or if it was team individual. stuff. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was, it was, like I said, soccer from like the age of six. And that was sort of my primary sport. The one that I would play through the summers, you know, I went to college and played there for a year. Uh, softball was sort of the other one. Um, and then some track and basketball when I was little, but um, those were the two uh-huh. kind of main sports. The interviews I've been able to find about mm-hmm. you that I've read, there's something that stands out to me. It seems like it was um, uh, something that I guess stood out to you because it seems to be the way you describe it a lot, that you spent a lot of time, like by coincidence, in jobs in restaurants mm-hmm. and then to support yourself as a student. A, I'm wondering, you know, very first restaurant jobs mm-hmm. and kind of how they hit you and B, what, what path you thought you were going to be on because I don't think I found that, yeah. right? I'm very curious to know yeah. what you thought you were going to be before you committed to doing this. Growing up, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think, you know, you were always asked that question as a child, like, what do you want to be? What do you, you know, what do you want to do? And I just, it never was in my head from day one, like what I wanted to do. Um, I do remember watching cooking shows, but I think that never occurred to me that that was a, a job or something you do. That was just entertainment. Yeah, entertainment. Um, and like I said, we love to eat and I love to, you know, help my mom cook. Um, but... I would say, well, my first restaurant job was when I was in summers in between college. I ended up working at a pizza place that had opened near my house in Buffalo. And so that was sort of my first kitchen experience. I was, you know, making pizzas and sandwiches and it, you know, wasn't anything fancy, but I, 
I loved it and just like loved going to work because I was like, hey, free pizza, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, free food. And did you have? I know it was just pizza and sandwiches. Yeah. Well, I mean, just pizza is not maybe maybe I don't know how right. good it was there, but. Yeah. Um, did you have a natural aptitude? Like, did you pick up on, like, the rhythm of what was going on there? Were you kind of good at kind of, like, they'd show you something yeah. once and you kind of picked it up quickly? Yeah, I think so. I, I I think when I started, because I had zero experience, and I here I was, like, a, you know, 18 or 19-year-old young woman, and there was, you know, it was all just sort of a bunch of older guys that had worked in pizzerias, you know, their life. So I think they kind of were, like, giving me these really simple boring jobs and um I think I I did prove myself kind of because by like you know a couple months later they were like showing me how to cook the pizzas in the oven I was making the sauces um I would like make myself snacks and it wasn't anything like creative but I would put you know some combinations together for a sandwich and then you know they took that and put it on the menu so you know at the time I wasn't looking at it as though oh I'm good at this or this is you know, like a call. What, yeah, yeah, what I should be doing. It was just a summer job, but you know, looking back on it, I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely was excited by it and um, loved kind of the rhythm of the prep work and mm-hmm. the chopping or you know just doing doing all the parts in a restaurant, even if it was just washing the pans at the end of the night. I loved that moment of kind of like finishing up and washing dishes, and I still kind of tell people to this day that like being in the dish pit's one of my favorite jobs because it's this sort of like therapy of you know you're sort of removed from the chaos and you just sort of get get into your own space and and your own zone and so well it's also is it not first of all i I mentioned it once in a while on this show when i did Mm -hmm. my old show that you were on once you Mm -hmm. know the front burner with Mm -hmm. my friend jimmy bradley we did a whole episode once called scrubs where we got some chefs in just to talk about dishwashing it's the it is the most common entry-level job yeah even people who many have gone on to become great important chefs Mm -hmm. that's probably the most common like people get that job and discover the kitchen that way right that's pretty normal right it's also uh, you know i don't know how many civilians get this it's an incredibly underrated you know it's a job that to the the unsophisticated about it probably just seems completely menial and mm-hmm. and and like the like the lowest of the lowest jobs that the the dish pit goes down during a service mm-hmm. the whole the whole um ecosystem crashes yeah. right yeah. oh yeah yeah it's, it's like a crucial and there's i know chefs who've brought dish dishwashers along with them oh yeah l- for longer than they've held on to sous chefs like right. th- that's like someone who comes with them for their like career oh yeah it's it's for certain one of the i mean people call these jobs unskilled labor but they they are not unskilled at all and you'll see that the second you get somebody who actually doesn't know how to be a dishwasher and you watch your kind of kitchen just start going down and down and plates stack up and in it's almost something you can't teach because it takes like a it's a method and an urgency and uh um you know kind of a puzzling of how you're going to get things done to get what people need out and um i think yeah people most most civilians probably don't understand how important that job is to a kitchen (laughs) so what did you think you were going to do like when you decide to go to college where'd you go and and what did you think in your head like what were you going to major in and what did you think you might do with your life i went to a small small college in north carolina called catawba college and um i i just became a psychology major because I had 
I feel like that's the one major people go into when they're not quite sure what they want to do. So um, they start taking some classes. And as an English major, I might yeah. take exception. <laughs> yeah, but that's <laughs> that, that as well. You know, all <laughs> those okay. yeah, all those majors right. that don't don't lead lead to much right, <laughs> unless you money. really go after yeah. them. But no, I mean, I, I had at that point always been interested in. I don't know. It, it was a subject I was interested in, and so I became a psych major and. Uh, kind of through the studies, became more and more interested in the abnormal kind of criminal forensic psychology part of it. Um, so were you thinking you might become sort of a re- like a, on the research side as opposed to, um, say, like a, I mean, broadly speaking, therapy? I wasn't sure, but I knew I wanted to go into sort of that, you know, forensic psychology, which is inevitably what brought me to New York City. Um, I, I got into John Jay College for the mas- uh, my master's degree there. Yeah, I guess I, I thought I would be, you know, I didn't love the research part of it, even though it was part of, of the studies. Um, but in my mind, I suppose that I thought I would be going to work in prisons or in courts or, you know, wherever anyone needs assessments and mm-hmm. um, kind of be that person. So simultaneously, I had picked up a job in a restaurant as a busser because I had no waiting table experience um, and it was around the block from my first apartment in New York. So I had started school, I had gotten this job and more and more as the semester went on I just found myself completely uninterested in school and completely fascinated with being in this restaurant. And um, Was it a restaurant I would know? It, it was called Ian Restaurant. It closed. I-A-N? Yeah. It, it wasn't, uh, yeah, wasn't. It was just sort of like a neighborhood spot. It was. They didn't have a PR firm. <laughs> they, they didn't. They were, you know, it was really good. And maybe at that time, I didn't quite know enough about food and dining. Um, but it was a little bit of a like finer it was like dining they were nice to spot. Do yeah, special. and they were doing like creative stuff. Before we go with your veering onto sure. that path, is this okay? Tell yeah. me if it's not yeah. okay. Well, no, I just find the whole criminal psych oh. piece so. I mean, I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone who was yeah. headed down that path. Although, really quick personal footnote: a summer job I had when I was in college because I didn't want to go home. Mm. I wanted to stay in New York, and I just wandered into FAO Shores one day with a resume, mm-hmm. and um, they they hired me as a part of the security team there, like undercover. Like yeah. I'd walk around pretending to be a shopper. Right. But all the guys, and it was all guys, all the guys I worked with were students at the John Jay College of Criminal Justice. Really? Every, yeah, they okay. all wanted to be detectives. Yeah. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually visited, you know, I was mm-hmm. over in the buildings there a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But what for you, do you, do you have you ever th- thought about it? Like, have you ever turned your psychology yeah. powers on your, like, what was appealing to that? And I don't even mean to chuckle yeah. about it. I actually think it's a really fascinating yeah. thing to have thought you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And being at a point where you're going for your master's, I mean, you're, that's not dabbling. Right. Like, you were pretty much on that path for a while. I think I just, out of all the, you know, subjects in psychology, found that one to be the most fascinating because, obviously, you know, the, there's there's sort of curves of where people fall on spectrums and there's a general, you know, I, I don't hesitate to say normal psychology, but... Um, you know, sort of a baseline, and then you have these people that are just completely off the charts of, you know, whether they're serious serial criminals or, um, you know, But people whatever. who made a decision pe- to yeah. live outside the, the social contract, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. So that's just, you know, sort of always fascinated me in terms of whether it was, you know, 
Um, you did a lot of study on like the nature and the nurture and where you know the the biology and obviously I think there's been probably since I was in college you know so much more information and research that's come out um, but yeah it just it, it was fascinating to me I was always um, it's funny because my pastry chef uh, and I listen to a lot of like true crime murder podcasts yeah that makes <laughs> and we're total both sense. very you know fascinated yeah. and um, you know into sort of why people are doing what they're doing so I I found myself I always enjoy that even in you know high school I took a college course over the summer that was like the history of criminal justice in America and um so yeah I was just always intrigued by it and I think at the time I was like well then if I like this so much I must want to do it and then when I actually got into the thick of it and being in the classes and studying it I was kind of like oh I'm not sure it's necessarily the direction I want to take well, it's also interesting that you're someone, because again, this is, you're only, you know, you're in your early 20s as you're just mm-hmm. assuming at this time that you, you know, make the shift. But, you know, someone, as someone who described themselves as like the shy kid, mm-hmm. you know, doing a, being in a field of research that where you might have to be, you know, you know, the kid who didn't want yeah. to meet the parents' friends. And now yeah. you're like, you might have to sit and interview or be present when, you know, some fairly intimidating, care, you know, yeah. personalities. Yeah. Yes. I, oh, for sure. And I think that's what kind of dawned on me where I was like, and it was, it was, you know, some of the introductory uh, classes I was taking for it were, you know, very daunting and somewhat frightening. You know, you were in like, you know, they kind of start you at the bare bones. So like you're in a, a criminal class. I forget specifically which one, but they're showing you like footage from a murder scene and you're just like, oh, like (laughs) I think it became so much more tangible when I got in the classes to where it was something that like reading about and and watching shows about was one thing, but then to kind of be in in it and have to really get into that mindset and understanding. Um, oh, and also the possibility of this being like yeah. something you were you were getting closer to diving off the do- the board, right? right? Like right. this is the pool I'm going to be swimming in for the right. like, my for, like my the next forty years of my life. Exactly. Yeah, and so just, that it seemed also kind of dark. I was like, do I really want to be like talking and studying people of right. this, you know, um, caliber for for life, you know, and be in prisons and courts? Um, yeah. You know, I'm, a, I'm generally a more optimistic happy person than that and I was kind of like oh this is this is starting to seem like a dark you know obviously I give credit to the people that do it and can maintain a you know a balanced life of being in that stuff every day and then you know stepping away but um yeah I definitely was like okay maybe it's not what I want and like I said I was working in a restaurant at the time and I found myself being more fascinated learning about um you know varietals and wines and you were front of the house I was front of the house yeah and uh but I would always like go in the back of the house to sneak and watch and uh see what they were doing but I just yeah it it, like I said I was in school and everything I was learning in school I was just like uh wasn't thrilled by wasn't excited by but wanted to go in early to the restaurant to sit with the manager and go over wine knowledge and just you know, like I said, I had only started as a busser, but I was like, I want to know more. I want to learn more. You know, teach me. I'll be a server. I want to go in the kitchen. And so it just, yeah. it really captured me. And I think even at that time, I wasn't quite sure it could be a career. I was just like, I find this fascinating and I want to learn about it. Mm-hmm. And then I think it kind of started to dawn on me where I was like, well, maybe I should consider this, you know. Right. You, I mean, you were obviously very young when that was going on. Yeah. But um, 
you know, to be involved in a, in a, you know, pursuing a master's degree and then mm -hmm. just to have a job on top of that, that's mm -hmm. a lot. But yeah. then to put in this extra time at the job, right? Yeah. Like, did you have a lot of disposable energy? Like, were you a um, fairly... I mean, yeah, I think, you know, I was You're 20, kind of 22, yeah. so I feel like 22-year-olds no have limit. And, yeah, yeah, endless energy. I guess that's true. Um, I mean, I definitely, I think part of it that led to my, you know, I ended up not really finishing. I think I finished, like, four out of the five classes that semester, and, like, one, I, at, at that point, around October, November, I kind of knew in my heart, I was like, I'm not going to continue to do this, so I think I just sort of, at that point, faded out of caring that much about the classes mm -hmm. and you know I think didn't turn in a few final projects for some of them because I wasn't putting you know the time into it yeah 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 um and I knew I wasn't going to return so I was just like why don't I put my energy towards what I want to learn you know and also I was 22 and had moved to New York City so there was also that extra level of like being in New York and just sort of the thrill of that and I I, I don't I, I don't want to be a New York snob about this, but having moved here for college, mm -hmm. you know, when I was 17, yeah. and, you know, it wasn't the best place to go to college, because no. <laughs> it's hugely distracting. Yeah. I mean, it's hugely distracting, unless yeah. you're very disciplined, but to yeah. plunk a kid who's meant to be in New York, in New York, right. there's, you're just dazzled. I don't, yeah. I don't, and when I say I don't want to be a snob about it, I mean, yeah, there's plenty of other great cities. Mm -hmm. I don't know any other city that I've heard people talk about the way a lot I've heard right. a lot of people talk the way you just did and certainly the way I did where like I came to school here and it's it was in New York yeah. you know and that yeah. that itself can be life altering mm -hmm. do you remember the moment when you <laughs> is that a camera yeah She's trying to snap a secret shot and <laughs> oh. um, was there a moment do you remember the moment when you decided was there a day? Was there a night? Was there a... I don't, I don't want to force it. Was mm -hmm. there a walk home after service one night? Was there a walk to class on a day you particularly were, you know, were realizing mm -hmm. you just kind of weren't into it? I can't like pinpoint a moment. I mean, I, actually, I think it was like I was trying to work on a paper and I was at the... I had like checked out the books from the school library and was at home trying to like research and I just... And I, I remember it being like kind of fascinating. Like it was like about like the New York mafia families and and so like it wasn't like boring research it was very interesting and but I just found myself being like reading all the the books and kind of like I don't want to turn this into a paper I just don't want to do this this project like I didn't want to do it and I you know like I said I just had been working and I wanted to go hang out with the people at work after work and so I think that was a moment but um I do recall sitting with my parents and having to tell them that I was not going to, you know, that I wanted to not go back uh, for the next semester um, because I wanted to work in a restaurant. So that was that was definitely a moment where I was I was dreading telling them. Because, was the reaction better or worse than what you thought? <laughs> or were your, was your expectation right on the money? It was, it was I, you know, my parents were always very, you know, understanding and obviously wanted to give direction and guidance, but ultimately always trusted us as children, you know, mm -hmm. and like our, you know, and I think my track record over the years, whether it was other things that I, I didn't want to pursue anymore or, um, you know, were always hard for them to hear, but ultimately, you know, they were like, we trust that you know what you want to do. Like, do you have a plan? What, you know, what is your plan? Um, I guess as long as you can make money and pay bills and you know mm -hmm. you're happy in what you're doing then they they stood behind it and um 
you know, again, at that time, I wasn't even sure of being in a kitchen yet. I just wanted to not go back to school. And mm-hmm. um, so they were, they were understanding that okay. it wasn't, wasn't my calling anymore. And so you're in your early 20s. Mm-hmm. You're, you're young enough to have grown up, like there are peers of yours, mm-hmm. uh, um, um, contemporaries of yours, who grew up watching celebrity chefs, who mm-hmm. grew up wanting to be this, you know, like, you know, they had their North Stars, right? Right. Not having been that kind of person, realizing you want to enter this world in your early 20s, mm-hmm. how do you even start plotting a course? Like, how do you even decide what your next job should be, cooking school, which I know you ended up doing? Mm-hmm. Like, how did you stick your toe in the water? Um, so, like I said, at this restaurant I was working at, um, once I left school and I kind of had more time to devote to it and, you know, I could pick up more shifts, I was just in the kitchen one day and, you know, talking with the chef and just expressing interest that I would love to come, like, spend a day with them in the kitchen. And I, you know, to me, I felt like that was like a big ask. I was like, nobody would let anyone do it. Little did I know that chefs are more than happy to have any free labor come in and do something because there's always an urge Another to be set of hands. Yeah, yeah, anything. Yeah. So like I thought I was kind of like imposing or stepping on toes by even bringing it up and he was like, of course, when do you, you know, like when do you want to come? And so that sort of kicked off a weekly day I would spend in the kitchen just helping them. And so I was like learning the, you know, with the one that cook in the garde marge station and helping with family meal and just, you know, doing all the little things that free hands in the kitchen do. And mostly um, this was, I assume they kind of, at least in the first weeks and months can find you to prep. Like you weren't working during service. Um, no, I was there. I was in, I was like with the, the you were gar- on the line Garmo. During, well, oh, I was with like Garmo, um, but during, during service, like you were plating stuff yeah. during it was, yeah. And it was only one day a week. And like, you know, at that point they were kind of really showing me like, basic you know like knife cutting skills and it was a really great small team um that you know there was a a lot of talent there was actually one of the he was a cook or a sous chef there Ravine Patel who's been uh I think in like Sacramento now for years working at Ella there and he's been Mm -hmm. in some of the circuits some of the festivals um so it was like people who you know it was a creative enough kitchen that people were aspiring for greater things there so, you know, they were showing me a lot of the basics. They're like, oh, this is a beurre fondue. This is a beurre blanc. Like, I, I was learning all these terms and dishes and skills that I had no idea existed. And, and were you um, going home on your, like, on your days off and your mm-hmm. free time with all this energy you had? Like, were you, were you starting to read up? Were you, like, yeah. were you kind of hitting the books in your, on your own time to expand uh, or start, I guess, your like education in earnest yeah I definitely was I feel like for Christmas that year I was getting some like beginner chef books or like introduction you know to knife cutting and like kind of all those things that your family just finds at a store for Mm -hmm. somebody who's interested in being a chef um and yeah and so I had been reading up on it and then that's when the restaurant ended up closing kind of like suddenly overnight you know as as restaurants often do Mm -hmm. that whatever investor issues um so I was actually away on a vacation and got a call that was like oh we're not we're closing tomorrow night and I just remember being devastated that I couldn't be there for you know the last night and with all the staff because we were really all so close that it it just sort of overnight ended and so then at that point I was like all right well what am I going to do now let me look into culinary schools let me you know let me try to take the step now. And I think at that point I had started doing some tours of schools and 
they're not cheap, you know. They're, I think, I think FCI at that point was upwards of like 40 or 50,000 for like a 10 month program. And yeah. so. I just have to interject. FCI was the French Culinary Institute, um, which became a division, I guess, yeah. of the ICC, which mm-hmm. I guess was the International Culinary yeah, Institute. Yeah. yeah. Um, or International Culinary Center. But yeah, in Soho in New York City. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I had started looking. I had looked at ICE. And in that time, that I was looking at culinary schools, I ended up finding another job at a restaurant at Aqua Grill in Soho, which oh, was an institution. Yeah, the institution. They closed, right? They the closed, last year or two? yeah, after the pandemic. Yeah, but Aqua Grill was right off Sixth Avenue and I always forget uh, Prince or Spring, Spring I guess. Street. Yeah, yeah right and it was there for like 20 something years. Yeah. Who was the chef there? Jeremy? Jeremy something? Marshall. Yeah, yeah, I never met Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. The Marshalls were a fixture. Yeah. Yeah, That restaurant was a fixture. mm -hmm. Yeah. So to me, that was almost like the step up. I was moving on downtown and I was waiting tables at this, you know, really busy restaurant in Soho. And it just like the life just like sparked in me. And I remember going in and starting the job and saying, well, like, I'm just trying to save some money. Um, And I was in the kitchen with one of the runners being like, I want want to go to culinary school. And he, he looked at me and then looked at all the people in the kitchen. He goes, why? look at how hard they're working back here (laughs) and you can work on the floor you only work nights you make so much money and he like kept saying this to me and I was like no I want to go um and uh so I was like I'm gonna save save some money this year and I'm gonna start next year and you know and eventually that one year turned into about five years of waiting tables um but I I think yeah I think I was just sort of in love with that life like the front of house was great and I'm so glad I was part of it so you learn so much doing that and you learn a lot about the dynamic of a restaurant and restaurants as a whole I mean it's a thing a lot of people yeah. working kitchens have never done yeah so I think it was very integral and vital to my process um can I just ask sure how does that serve I, I don't I'm worried I might forget to ask it later how does it serve you now like that's a lot of years yeah. for someone who ends up on the other side of the you know, the swinging door, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of years to be in the front of the house for someone who ends up as a chef. I can imagine a lot of ways, but mm-hmm. w- what are they? I think most immediately how it served me was when I went to culinary school, despite not being in the kitchen, but when you're front of house, you still have to know how everything's made. You have to be able to explain dishes. You have to know ingredients. Um, you kind of have to know just as much as everyone in the kitchen. So when I stepped into school and then stepped into my first internship I kind of had this leg up where I you know I remember day one of school they were going over and they're like this is a shallot and like 80% of the class didn't know what a shallot was and I was like yeah it's like in the onion family you know it's like uh like I just I knew because you have to be able to answer all those questions yeah so right away I felt like oh okay like I I already know what I'm doing well you Um, probably also just knew a lot of different like remoulade yeah right or or romesco like these things that you probably at some point in some job, right. and us, whether it was on the menu or a special, or like you probably knew a lot of the most common preparations. and mm-hmm. Yeah, like a lot of the things weren't foreign to me when I stepped in and they were like, this is this kind of cut, or this is a julienne or a brunoise, because I was like, oh, well, yeah, I know that because that's this garnish on this dish at right. work. Um, so I think that, and then when I like, you know, stepped into my internship, I wasn't, I think so many people just don't understand how restaurants work or function. So I was also already a leg up by being in a kitchen. 
by knowing, you know, people coming in being like, we need this on the fly or do this. Like I just, I, I had that ability to multitask because you have to when you wait tables as well and you have to adapt to every piece of new information that's thrown at you every minute of mm -hmm. working. So that translates to the kitchen because it's not just a straight line through the night. You don't just do this, 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 this. You keep getting new info, new orders, new requests and you have to adjust how you're doing stuff to make it make it work and make it time right um so i think i just kind of had that in me stepping into a kitchen of just understanding the flow understanding what people needed and then i i understood how the dynamic of front and back have to work um i think so many people who work in kitchens or only work front of house you you almost see yourselves as like two sides like you know, Historically, I think right. that's very true. I don't yeah. know if it's is it as true now. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's still still true in many places, depending on yeah. you know where you work or what kind of you know environment culture. or yeah. culture there yeah. is. But um, you know, I think I remember working in kitchens, and I, I forget what it was, but there was a server that worked there, and I had said something about working in front of the house and she's like, oh, you've waited tables? And I was like, yeah. She's like, oh, no wonder you're so human. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I get it because there has been that culture of like servers going in and getting yelled at by chefs or getting, you know, demeaned or, you I don't, know. If you want to talk about things civilians yeah. have no idea about, yeah. I'm, I'm sure you've heard it. I for sure have heard it private. I mean, the disdain, mm -hmm. the absolute disdain that is like a, like a lot of chefs yeah. hold the front of house in they just see it as people yeah. they need to keep from like screwing up yeah. stuff right they it's they, they don't respect it equal yeah. i mean uh, this is not the prevailing view but there's a sizable oh, subpopulation yeah. of chefs out there mm -hmm. who that's their attitude they yeah. don't see it as one big harmonious as one family right 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 um which to me just seems crazy yeah it's so, because we're it's all so counter to the mission yeah we're all working for the same goal and yeah. um you know for the the good of the restaurant so yeah. to understand of course nobody's perfect i'm not perfect the kitchen's not perfect front of houses yeah. and and we all make mistakes and you know obviously if somebody's making a consistent same mistake and they're not learning or growing then it's a bigger issue but you know things happen and and you know I had that understanding that things happen for servers and I have that understanding that a lot of times servers are just the messengers from the tables like and the amount of times I used to have to go in the kitchen and go to a chef and be like I know the answer but I told this table I would check because you know this XYZ. was for like a special yeah like an accommodation on a dish exactly yeah, and an alteration. so like yeah. you know you 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 don't want to just lie or you want to double check things sometimes if there's allergies even though as servers you always are supposed to know the menu you know an allergy is serious so I, I don't mind people double checking because we need to know they need to know and uh so I think a lot of these things I was understanding of and um you know being in the front of the house it it sort of showed me the position the servers are in every night and having to deal with the guests coming in and you know I get to just be down in the kitchen now and not <laughs> have to be you know face fronting them and um and so it's 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 hard that's a lot of mental energy to cater to and and yeah. talk to people all night um and make sure people are happy so yeah so yeah I give you know front yeah. of house a lot of <laughs> respect as well because yeah. it's a hard job well it's funny to a person the people we interacted with when i came to dinner recently it was just i mean the mm -hmm. vibe was great what was the cooking school experience what was that like for you 
Um, I, I loved it. I, I would tell people if they don't need to go, you know, there's many ways you can learn how to cook. You can go into kitchens and most kitchens would be happy to have you come and, you know, just stage and learn. Um, so if you don't want to spend that money, you do learn the majority of what you need working in restaurants. Um, but for me, I've always been a person who really likes to have like a grasp of a foundation and kind of know from ground zero what I'm doing. So for me, I wanted to have that background so I could study sort of whatever histories of cooking methods or um, just kind of get that that foundation of cooking so that I felt I could build off of that. Mm -hmm. um, and you went to ICE Institute of Culinary Education when it was yeah. on 23rd Street, yeah. I assume? Mm -hmm. And how yeah. long a program was that at the time? It was about a 10-month program. And I actually, they were... At that point, I think I got like a discounted course because they were piloting this um, day where you did double classes. Because it used to be like three days a week, um, you would go in for four hour classes. So they were piloting a program where it was one day was eight hours and you did two classes and then you went another day for four hours. And so for me, I had been, you know, waiting tables and it was kind of like didn't want to give up three days a week to go yeah. to school. To push it all onto one day, you know, was was good because it allowed me to still have, you know, like five other days to keep working. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was fun to be in culinary school, learning everything, and then go to the restaurant, you know, wait tables, but then go in the kitchen and, like, talk to the guys and be like, oh, we're learning this today. Or, like, you know, and I felt like I had um, people that, you know, were almost... Um, tutors along the way where I could go and ask questions or be like, we're doing this in class. What, you know, what do you think? Um, How great is that? Yeah. So it, it was, I think I just, you know, was lucky to have that job because it was a really great support system while I was in school. You're learning all these technical things. Mm -hmm. And as you said, you had all these like sort of de facto, mm -hmm. you know, mentors, tutors, adjunct professors at your right. job. But, you know, here you are today, right? You're, you're the chef of a restaurant. You have mm -hmm. your own dishes, right? You, you have an evolving and expanding repertoire. That's a certain kind of chef. You mm -hmm. know, there's also people who are professional cooks their mm -hmm. whole life. There's people who are chefs, but they're just kind of executing on a classic playbook, right? Mm -hmm. They're not as concerned with doing their own stuff. Right. Are you at this point, like when you're a student, um, are you thinking in terms of, that maybe one day you want to be doing like what you're doing now, right? Like creating your, I, a lot of, I know a lot of people don't like the word creating, but composing your own right. dishes, having, you know, being a known chef in a city like New York, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or were you in the most classic, pure way, were you just kind of learning a craft and not thinking that far ahead yet? Yeah. Like where was your head? Yeah, I don't think I had, I, I wasn't looking that far into the the future at that point I think I was just sort of jumping onto it and being yeah. like this is you know I've I've found this fascinating I don't know where it's going to take me um but I just know I want to learn more I want to I want to see what it's about um I don't think I had like these high hopes that I mean maybe somewhere in the back of my mind I was like oh I'll have my own restaurant one day but you and weren't plotting that. no I, I still don't think at that point even as a student and even working in restaurants in New York I still don't think um I truly understood the craft and the the certain standards and levels that a lot of the top restaurants in the industry, how they function and operate and, and what goes into it. I was just kind of like, oh, I just want to learn how to cook food. I want, 
you know, this is fun. It's different. I feel like I'm finally energized by something and excited about something. Um, so let me, you know, go to school and, and see where it takes me. And, you know, and, and then at, when I had to start figuring out where I was going to do my internship, I think that's when I kind of really started to delve more into being like, well, who are the chefs of the city? Who do I want to learn from? You know, somewhere that would like nurture whatever potential I had. Yeah. I mean, this kind of moment in life you're describing, Mm -hmm. please tell me if I'm wrong, but having been on a path, like you were on a very serious path, Mm -hmm. a very scholarly path in Mm -hmm. its way, path that required a lot of work. You know, you were going for a master's degree. I would imagine that, you know, being in your twenties, having made this, you know, had the courage to like Mm -hmm. make this change, not having the five-year plan, not having the, I want my own restaurant by the time I'm whatever, fill in the age, you know, 30, right. 35, whatever. That feels to me like it must have been an incredibly intoxicating, um, powerful thing to wake up with every day. Mm-hmm. That you were really just doing something because you loved it without th- this... Without the pressures that I'm right. describing, you know, like a five-year plan, that's like putting a clock on yourself right away. Yeah, you know, for and sure. So to just be pursuing something like this, mm-hmm. I w- am I right? Was it? Yeah, was it, it was, great to wake up doing that every yeah, day? Yeah, it was definitely because it felt like you this know, is living in the moment. Yeah, you 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 grow up, you go to school. It's like okay, now you're going to high school. Now figure out which college you're going to. What are you going to college for? You know, there's from the moment you're born, you just kind of get put in these like paths that are dictated for you you're on a conveyor belt. and then yeah, yeah and and then it felt like the first time in my life where I was like well no I'm making the you know choice of what I want to do and it's kind of out of the ordinary of what most people were doing that you know I grew up with or um honestly I can't think of anybody I grew up with in this in the same path so yeah and I, I didn't I didn't always like to set like five-year plans for myself because I always felt that sometimes if you're so focused on one goal, you might fail to see the other opportunities coming up around you. So I just, I always was the kind of person that was like, well, you know, like I just kind of want to follow what is inspiring and exciting to me. And if I get so caught up on like, I have to do this by this time and this age, you, you, you put blinders on only focused on one thing. And I'm a person that's just always wanted to see what's out there because yeah. You know, maybe there's some a path that you're missing because you were so focused on this other goal. So, so yeah. So I just kind of felt like I'm going to see where this takes me. I'm going to, you know, end up at this restaurant and and see what what happens. So you do your externship at Anissa. I did. Yes. Yeah. How did you set your sights on that restaurant? At the time, I had. Um, I think I had like four or five restaurants. You know, you you have your career advisor at school, and um, you kind of tell them what you're looking for I think I had put like a female chef ideally in there um it wasn't you know something that I, I needed to have but um I think I, I just put it as a preference um and yeah I, I think I trailed at 11 Madison Park at a voce with Missy Robbins craft or no no it wasn't craft it was um Colicchio and Sons because it had oh. just kind of opened and okay um, it's kind of a forgotten project. Yeah. Point, that was over where his, I forget what they the steak place. Yeah. That was over on where Del Posto was, over yeah. on 10th Avenue above 14th Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I was just sort of trying to see different types, different styles, um, and, you know, kind of researching the chefs out there. And a friend of mine who I waited tables with knew of Anita Lowe. I hadn't heard of her at that point, but we went to some tasting event and Anita was there. And um, we should say Anita was, was the chef. 
owner of yeah. Anissa, which I which I'm correct, right? I'm remembering right. You said you were possibly interested in working for a woman chef. That, yeah, Anissa means woman, no? In yeah, in Arabic, yeah. it means women yeah. um, or woman. Yeah, ended up they bought me tickets to go to one of these like tastes of New York or you know whatever like a tasting of, yeah thing. yeah that had a bunch of different chefs from the city. So I was like, oh, this could be a good way to kind of get a an idea of what these these chefs are doing. And maybe make connections. Um, and so, yeah, we were walking around and Nita was there and she had um, her barbecued squid over a peanut edamame salad that was like the bite that sold me for the night. Like, it was just like, that, like I want to keep going back and having that. So then my friends got me a gift card for the restaurant to go try the food and I just sort of loved it. So I was like, well, I'll go, I'll go trail there. And spent a night in the kitchen and it just it, you know you, there are like moments where you just something feels right you feel and like I, you're where you're yeah, supposed to be yeah and it just it felt yeah. like it felt natural and I remember Anita wasn't there the night I trailed um but it was just like a small kitchen I've always been you know I went to small schools my whole life I just I thrive in small settings um I like sort of the closeness and the familiarity of the people around you and not feeling like you're a cog in a machine of a hundred people well i think it um, also doesn't it to me this goes back it's why i always ask about it, it goes back yeah. to team sports yeah like in terms sure. of like a small kind of yeah, harmonizing like you, group yeah right? like you have like your your core people you trust everyone you know who you're working with you know what to expect you know most days and um i just i just liked it it felt like a place that would nurture me to grow and where i wouldn't get lost everything was going to be very hands-on you know you were going to get to you know, see the plating, see the cooking. Luckily, they had a space for me to join as an intern. And so I spent, yeah, I spent three months, two two or three months there as an uh, intern. And then fortunately, just as my internship was ending, someone was leaving the kitchen, which at that point, you know, they only had a few staff members and a lot of them were there for like three years, four years. Like, it just seemed like a place where there wasn't ever going to be a chance to get in. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just happened that... Um, Suzanne Cups, who was one of the, you know, I think Sue's or, you know, like lead line cook, she was moving on. And so it, ha- it just led to an opening that um, I was able to go in and capture. That's great. Suzanne's been on the show. She's currently at mm-hmm. 232 Bleecker Street. Mm-hmm. So you eventually become the chef de cuisine yeah. of yeah. Anissa. I mean, I don't even know how to attack a um, continuum like that, yeah. right? But for you, like, how did how do you recount? How does that go by in your mind, right? When you, like, when you think about that um, progression for mm-hmm. yourself, did it surprise you that you ended up? I mean, until not all that long ago, you kind of spent your career there, yeah. and that's not it happens. But that feels very much like an exception to me. Mm-hmm. I don't, especially these days, right? Yeah. I don't think it's the most normal path. Yeah. How far in were you where you kind of started to think maybe I'll eventually be the the CDC here? The growth happened pretty rapidly there. Um, that there was just like a series of openings that just kept happening. So I was um, sort of skyrocketed from being an intern to like Garmo for two months to grill station for a month to this, you know, saute cook, um, just as there was like some turnover with employees. So it, it kind of happened. And then the sous chef at the time, who I think had been there about seven years, um, I think found that I was, you know, he, he cared about the restaurant and didn't want to leave Anita, you know, without anyone. So I think as he saw my growth and knowing I would be able to do the job he was doing, um, it gave him the comfort to, you know, move on. So it it was sort of a rapid, like within under a year, I was an intern to sous chef, which 
um, that's crazy. wildly. Yeah. Like, you know, I think back and I'm like, I knew nothing. Like there was, you know, I, I shouldn't have been doing that, but, but no, I, I think well, wait, at that you point, say that, but yeah. you, you no, must I just be being yeah. modest. Like I, you might, I assume you were probably working really hard and yeah. in, in being like a sponge yeah. for, for information technique. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Of course. And, um, you know, I think a lot of times in small restaurants like that, it's just always easier to promote from within than bring somebody who might have four years as a sous chef experience. Um, you know, it was such a small restaurant that, you know, Anita was still there most nights. There was a lot of oversight. So it, it was giving me that room to grow and learn how to manage people. For me, it was difficult just because I, I don't if I don't feel like I know enough, it's hard to feel like you have authority over other people and being able to tell them what to do or how to do things when I still was like, I'm not quite sure how to do this yet myself. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I, I mean, I was responsible. I, I knew how to do all the dishes on the station. And through that experience, I learned how to, you know, manage people better. And each year it got easier. And um, the more and more you cook, the more you learn and the more you, you understand food. So... Um, you know, it was definitely a daunting task in the beginning, but then it just sort of became a really good, you know, role to be in. And then um, at that point, Anita had been, you know, she was she was wanting to put she was on the line five nights a week as Expo. And at that point, you know, she was having some knee issues and just wanted to remove herself from needing to be on the line. Oh, well, she had what? Ultimately, three surgeries. Yeah, uh, she had like some small ones and then a whole knee replacement, the, yeah. like. You but know, I went to do an interview with her yeah. once in, you know, in the apartment in the, oh, right. in the West was, Village, and yeah. she was recuperating. Yeah, like I, she, I was... said, can I have an interview? And she said, if you don't mind coming to my apartment, because yeah. I, can't, I can't leave. Yeah. She's like, I can't go anywhere. Yeah, I think that was the, the big knee replacement. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so she was just looking to move herself from there, and so that's when she created. Anissa had never had a CDC because she was just there all the time. So it um, opened up that slot for me, and... That's where I, you know, I really was able to grow and have, you know, input on the menu and kind of start to test things and test my creative abilities and and start to feel comfortable knowing that, you know, Anita would critique it and have guidance on it, but also, you know, guide what I was looking to do or help improve what I wanted to do. So, mm -hmm. so it was like, you know, for me it was perfect because I I felt comfortable enough to put things out there without fear of you know them getting slammed and if she didn't like it she would tell me but you know, it was always with um with like well how can we make this work or how can you know what changes can you make to this dish that will make it better and balanced and so it's really how I learned the process of well of composing dishes and mm -hmm. so I don't want to get overly personal um <laughs> it's not a secret you and Anita at some point became a couple mm -hmm. the question I'm always interested in with the CDC especially I didn't realize you were the first ever CDC yeah. but it's like you know where does that person begin and you know where does that person end and sort of the executive chef or the chef owner right you know begin right because mm -hmm. there is that there's always that dance yeah but then as someone who and she's you know she's given up tennis but as someone who <laughs> i met my wife working together right. that did not go well she ended up <laughs> leaving the company when we right. it was clear we weren't a flash in the pan right um when she was trying to be a tennis player for me like mm -hmm. we could not play tennis together right you have this, you know, this extra thing, which I could yeah. see going either direction. So how did yeah. you guys navigate that collaboration? Um, and I hope that question's okay. Yeah, no, it was definitely, I mean, I, I still knew my, my place. There was no part of me that was ever like, well, 
I'm, you know, the CDC and I know more than you. Like, you know, I always had that reverence and respect that, like, she she knew what was going on. Um, so, yeah, at that point, I mean, she was still composing a lot of the dishes. Um, and, you know, it wasn't always easy. There would definitely be moments of, you know, just being busy or frustrated with something. And, you know, it's hard to sometimes keep the personal out sure. of <laughs> work. But, I mean, it was always very, you know, everybody was aware in the kitchen and in the restaurant. And, um, you know, it was always very professional. We were we were fine. Um, but, but in terms yeah. of you starting to kind of poke your own, like finding mm-hmm. your, I call, what it's what I refer to as your voice on the plate, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. that, I mean, you, I came to dinner here recently. You have a, I mean, you clearly have a very... You have a very assured, to me, a very mm. assured sense of who you are, mm-hmm. right, and your food. Uh, this is when it was being developed. I mean, yeah. it had to be. Yeah. So was that, I guess I'm wondering, like, how hard it is to do that when it's not your, you know, I mean, it, the restaurant wasn't called Nita, right. but right. when it's not your name, you know, yeah. that people necessarily <clears throat> associate with the restaurant. Did you have the room, I guess, to kind of spread your wings a little and start honing, like, what eventually mm-hmm. you would now say like oh that's kind of an early signpost right like, does that make sense like yeah. on my creative path that's or was it more like you were trying to create in the stuff like the house style, exactly I, right? w- I was definitely you know I, f- I feel like the way we learn another language or learn to read you, you learn by repeating something or you know mimicking something else um you know you learn how to play an instrument you learn other people's songs and then you build on that so I feel like I was always um, trying to make things in this perspective and style that she would make things because of course anything that I was coming up with would have to fit into the, I call the, it the ethos lane. yeah, yeah. The, 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 Ani- of, the Anissa Lane yeah so yeah. I couldn't just be putting off the wall dishes that didn't make sense um, on that menu so I, I definitely was um, just trying to think of ingredients to work with but then keep them in her style, um, which, for, you know, fortunately her style was kind of like open in terms of, you know, ingredients and cuisines and it was more about the application of them and how you, you, you know, how you put your perspective on the dish. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so I would definitely, I would, I would come up with dishes and say we can put this together and she would, you know, kind of fine tune them. You know, mm-hmm. I, I would come with the, the bones Edit. of it. Yeah, yeah, and she would sort of give it those touches that made it Anissa. Um, So that was, yeah, it was really helpful. I mean, it was always hard to hear when it wasn't something that was a solid dish, but, you know, I was learning and, and, you know, I think every chef goes through where you think you have a really great idea and you try to compose it and then you're like, oh, this isn't working at all. It's not coming out exactly how I thought it would. And Well, um, I think about it the same way I think about, you know, actors talk about when you don't get a gig, when you don't get the part, Mm -hmm. that it's very personal because you feel like it's you. Like you went in Mm -hmm. and you... And I always feel like that it's, I think it's very similar for cooks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if that resonates at all with you, but like I do feel like if you're really putting it out there, if you really are trying to do, I mean, it's not that different from what a writer yeah. feels like when you put some, you know, when you send something off to someone. Yeah. Like I send something to my agent. Sometimes I think it's like the greatest thing I've done, yeah. you know, and then eh, you kind of miss the mark. Yeah. It's crushing. Yeah. Because you're Personally there's crushing. Always a, yeah, there's always. It's kind of what, I mean, if you're doing work that you care about that yeah. you left other things mm-hmm. for that aren't that easy financially and all this other stuff, like right. what are you doing it for? It's right. like, it means something to you. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of heart and soul and, you know, you, you know, being any sort of artist, 
you, you put yourself out there. And so it is, it's, it's daunting to be like, okay, like I like this dish, I think it works, but then all, now you, you give it to everyone to try and everyone has different, you know, thoughts and ideas and palettes. And so then now you have to be like, okay, well, like who's, you know, at what point are you like, all right, I can see where, if, if, if enough people are like, well, this might not work. And then you're like, okay, maybe I'm reaching here. Um, yeah, that's, it's, it's definitely hard to, um, put yourself out like out there like that. But, um, you know, it, it, if you're around people who you trust as I was with Anita, I knew she was, you know, critiquing only to make it better oh, and, be, sure. and make you better. So oh, yeah. it, it's, you know, but it doesn't it's make hard them, it to hear sometimes, but you, you know, you, you get over the little hump of being like, oh, well, you have to want to hear yeah. it, right? Yeah. Like, like writers have this thing, you yeah. hand a draft to a good friend, usually another writer, and mm-hmm. you're like, be, you know, like writers, they always use this, everyone uses the same word, be brutal. Because mm-hmm. it's the only way you get better. Exactly, exactly. Okay, so that restaurant, sadly, I mean, it had a great run. Yeah. It had a yeah. great run. Yeah. I was at one of the last dinners uh, during the last week. Yeah, I think um, it's almost four years ago to okay, one of these days. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I just blinked, and here we are. I know. But, um... You had a couple of gigs between then and now, mm-hmm. but now you know you're here at Musket Room. How mm-hmm. did you, how did this opportunity find you, and how do you describe what you're doing here? Um, well, it's been it's been a unique year, so sure. it's hard to to pinpoint. We should say you were announced yet. what? How long before the lockdown? Here, the, well, I I started like two weeks. Yeah. I think like February twenty yeah. fourth last year. Yeah, so I. I um, got connected here through actually somebody Anita knew um Stan Sagner who reached out to her um and then she's like well Mary might be looking soon and so he connected um Jennifer the owner uh and me to uh together so we um yeah I think we spent about like three or four months talking before because I wasn't um I wasn't ready to take on a job yet because I think it was like in the fall. So I was just like, my, my father had just passed away that summer and I was kind of like, you know, I'm taking time off. I want to be home for the holidays. I'm not looking to get into anything. So um, I wasn't even planning on looking for anything. But when I heard that the opportunity was here, I had, you know, been here way back when it opened and, you know, knew the space and just kind of was like, all right, well, that's, it's kind of like what I'm looking for, a really nice kind of, you know, small to medium independent restaurant um, that, you know, is in not too far from where I live. Like it, it just, it was checking all the boxes at the moment mm-hmm. and, and I didn't want to put off the opportunity. Um, fortunately, timing kind of worked out where they weren't immediately looking for someone. So it wasn't sort of a like, we need you next week. If you can't be here next week, it's not going to happen. So we were able to really talk and connect and kind of make sure um, we were on the same path and had the same vision of, you know, what we were looking for and what she needed here. Um, so yeah, so I think after like three or four months after the holidays, it all came together and, and I ended up here and then the pandemic happened. So just unreal. It just, just was, unreal. It was, yeah, it was a bit of a whirlwind and, you know, I was just in here trying to get my feet wet and kind of <sighs> figure out because it was such a, you know, functioning machine. I mean, they, they didn't have a, a chef for a bit, but, um, you know, the restaurant was just still operating and the kitchen was still churning out great stuff and operating. And I was like, how am I even going to begin to like put myself, insert myself into this, right. into this. And, uh, and 
then I said, yeah, then two weeks later, we ended up closing. We did a quick pivot to takeout, which was really hard because this restaurant wasn't really equipped for that. But yeah. we made that happen for like a week or two. And then that's when, you know, everything kind of got pretty dark and pretty scary. And we were like, you know what, let's just let's just step back. We'll all like go quarantine, make sure we're, we're all safe. Our families are safe thinking that we'd be back in a few weeks. And then everybody thought that, yeah, we were like, well, two weeks, we'll, we'll take two weeks. We'll quarantine, make sure we're, we're healthy. And then, <laughs> no, as so I'm sitting here with yeah. you, I, I was just editing earlier. I'm running it. It'll have run the, you know, the week prior to your interview, <clears throat> but editing an interview with Alex Raj. Mm -hmm. And we were all, you know, she was like, yeah, we thought it was gonna be three weeks, yeah. you know? And then I said, um, I don't want to say who on air, but actually a mutual friend of yours mm -hmm. and mine who I spoke to like last, met, like a year ago right mm -hmm. now. And they were like, yeah, I'm starting to think about reopening. Yeah. You know, and people were. Yeah. People were. Yeah. That was a year ago. It's, you know, it ended up being a year off. Yeah. You know, um, which is not a criticism. We, I think we all started to think, you know, yeah. nobody could imagine this like way this thing was going to just, ex yeah. like the path was going to expand. Yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you're back. Well, I started asking the conversation by asking, you know, how the year had been. Mm -hmm. How are you, I mean, looking forward, like, yeah. you know, it's very weird to me after, a, you know, I, I had to, I, I normally don't do remote interviews and then mm -hmm. for a year I had to and right. then last summer I could see people in person a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, I, we haven't had our masks on for an hour. Yeah. You know, I'm sitting here talking to you. This kind of feels a little normal. <laughs> yeah. Does Does it feel that way for you? I mean... You're living, you're, I mean, you're in the trenches in the way that I'm yeah. not, but do, do you feel a sense of increasing normalcy or is that overstating this moment where we are right now? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely think we're on this path to things feeling somewhat normal again. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that were normal before that um, hopefully we're building on or changing that's just sort of as as we've said it as an industry as a whole or trying to like make better for you're talking about the, what some employees. people call the reset yeah, yeah just kind of like um you know obviously making work be a healthy work environment which you know i i, I believe i was operating anyway can i just yeah. ask you just mentioned i mean i still mm. call it the reset that was the term a lot of people were yeah. using a year ago i, I really believe I actually tried to sell a book on this subject mm -hmm. with a writing partner last summer. Um, um, I'm sorry to say the publishing industry was like being very skittish about mm -hmm. the hospitality business. I never doubted restaurants. I mean, obviously we lost yeah. a lot of them, but mm -hmm. I, I never thought we were going to not have restaurants. I right. thought that was silly. But um, my feeling from where I sit and the people, you know, and talking to several, you know, many people a week who do what you do, mm -hmm. I feel like this is a real thing. Yeah. Like, I feel like there is a, more than I've ever sensed it, a uh, a swelling collective um, will to affect change, institutional mm -hmm. change, mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, a lot of people saying our prices are going to go up so mm -hmm. that our bottom line makes sense, yeah. uh, or finally a, a t tackling the tipping system, yeah. like these kind of things. This yeah. is what you're referring to, right? Yeah, Before, yeah. Like, I, mean, I feel like, I, and, but I feel like for a lot of those things to happen and succeed, mm -hmm. I mean, we're not we're not that far here from our mutual friend Amanda Cohen, yeah. who's managed to do the tipping thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, it's not that normal. It's a hard mm -hmm. sell because if you're one of the few people doing it, your prices look high, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
But I feel like the numbers of, you know, are, are growing. I feel yeah. like there are going to be some more coordinated efforts. Mm-hmm. That's what you're referring to. Yeah, I think do there's you, just you, been... Are you feeling it where you sit? Do you think it's going to... Um, I mean, I think I definitely can't go back to just normal, like what it was. I mean, I think there are enough... Um, I mean, I, this whole pandemic, we saw that restaurant workers were essential the whole time and putting their lives on the line. And, and so I think just like the level of, um, you know, kind of disrespect or, you know, that restaurant workers have faced over the years and sort of this um, entitlement amongst guests or, you know, even restaurants not, not respecting their workers. Um, I think that's going to change. I don't think that they're going to, you know, workers can put up with that anymore. I think even, you know, um, even with guests coming in to dine, like, you know, there's, there used to be a certain amount of like, oh, the customer's always right. You know, we, we cater to them. And even if we're getting treated disrespectfully, we still make their night the best. And it's, it's no, like we've been, we've been grinding away for a year, just trying to stay open and survive. And, you know, we've made it through, <laughs> and, right. you know, we, there's things that won't, you know, people won't put up with anymore. And I think there has to be a shift in the psychology of restaurants and what people know restaurants as and and an education on on the dining side where customers and guests understand that it just you don't get it your way all the time just because you're coming in like there is a a mutual contract of you coming in to dine um so hopefully those things will all you know start to evolve and the conversations will get louder and bigger and you know the small changes along the way will be you know built upon so i'm hopeful And that's our show for today. Again, my great thanks to Mary Atea and Drew Naporent. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, please contribute via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Chefs, or support us by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple podcast our thanks as always to after school special for our music please check out their album double barrel single entendre on itunes please follow us on instagram the handle there is at chef podcast thank you as always for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of andrew talks to chefs